Hi, and welcome back to OA On Air via social distancing. I'm Kyan Isaacson. This week, it's 321 Go with Cosmo Macero. Then, Ann Murphy talks to Brookline Bank's Kevin Noyes on what it means to be financially literate and when to start teaching financial literacy to young people. And in two minutes with Tom, we're talking the Biden-Harris ticket. First up, 321 Go. All right, welcome back to another edition of 321 Go, our weekly look into the world of public affairs, culture, business, and the economy. I'm your host, Cosmo Macero, here with Kyan Isaacson, the official voice of OA on Air. Kyan, how you doing? I'm good. How are you? Very, very well, thank you. Busy, busy week. Excellent. Busy week, lots going on. Um, let's jump right into a coronavirus outbreak-related story, vaccines, all kinds of of uh, not all kinds, but a, a variety of different vaccine initiatives underway globally, much of it here in the U.S., different companies involved, different initiatives, different um, phases happening on clinical trials. But Russia is is, is marching ahead very quickly, uh, it appears, with, uh, with their entry in the vaccine sweepstakes. I got to tell you, it, it makes me feel like there's a space race dynamic here with them that <laughs> Russia wants to be the, not that it's a bad thing it's a good thing to be the country that 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 that, that produces the first useful vaccine here but but they're really marching ahead pretty quickly am i right they're marching ahead quickly i would argue yes it does it feels very much like some sort of a of a race um which is can be good for science, but also detrimental. You you want to be the first, but you don't want to be the first if it means your vaccine doesn't work, quote unquote. Um, this vaccine has essentially skipped the phase three trial, which is the largest uh, in the set of clinical trials. There are usually three phases uh, with phase three, usually including like perhaps thousands of people. And then they explore and look at what the repercussions are. Um, President Putin came out and said, we have a vaccine, and apparently he's so confident in it that he gave it to his daughter. Um, who knows if that is true or not, um, but it's it's a little concerning, I think. Um, rushed is, is a word that a lot of people have used. Uh, I did read that there are some fears politically that, you know, does that put Trump into a place where he thinks, oh, well, Russia's beating us, so now we have to do something, and it causes us to rush irresponsibly. Um, there are a lot of potential fallouts from rushing a vaccine, um, health-wise and otherwise. Why didn't Putin take the thing himself? I mean, even Donald Trump took even Trump took the uh, hydroxychloroquine himself, apparently, right? He was giving it to his daughter? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I wonder if he thinks that shows an even higher level of trust um you know as a parent like you would do something but then if you're willing to do it for your child that's just a whole other level of, of confidence I, I would think that's my that's my thought process but i don't know yeah. um, and the clinical trials around vaccines are really rigorous for good reason uh, we don't want to have vaccines that ultimately end up causing long-term damage in other ways that are equal to or or worse than what they were orig originally treating. Um, 
trials here in the United States are incredibly rigorous uh, and monitored. We've got the Moderna vaccine has reached reached a deal with the U.S. government, um, with expectations being that that will come out sooner than any others. We have a lot in the works here in the United States as well, but it's um, you got to wonder what what this means when it all hashes out. Is it real? Um, and what's the potential fallout health-wise for the people that perhaps it's given to, um, as well as politically? Agreed. And, you know, I mean, unlike, and maybe this is stating the obvious, but, you know, unlike a medication or treatment or drug designed to treat uh, a, a severe condition, which it, you're talking about a much smaller sort of defined population where, I suppose you might or you could, or in many cases, I think there is a higher level of acceptable risk to, uh, to, to help those people who are already afflicted with a certain condition. This is a vaccine designed to be given to millions and millions of people as a defense mechanism, right? As an inoculation against and protecting. So, so you got to get it right. You've got to get it right because you're going to give it to the whole populace. Of people who are seemingly healthy. Yes, and that's that's the other side of it. That a, yeah. a treatment, um, these people are in many cases already sick, um, and you have to try different options to treat it. But when you're giving a vaccine, you're giving it most likely to healthy people, um, and potentially putting them in harm if you haven't gone through all the processes to validate it and make sure that it is safe and effective. From this New York Times story. Um on the, Dr. Nicole Laurie, a former assistant secretary for preparedness from the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, now an advisor to the Coalition for Epidemic Preparedness Innovations, it's a mouthful, said the lesson US should, the U.S. government should take from uh, Vladimir Putin's announcement is very clear. This is exactly the situation that Americans expect our government to avoid. Okay, that I'm absolutely concerned <laughs> that the opposite effect with Donald Trump means tomorrow he's going to be like, hey, can we get some of that Rus some of that Russian <laughs> stuff over here? I think that's a lot of people's concern or that he pushes folks here to put something into a that's, that's not ready. That's right. How, if Russia's skipping phase three, why can't we? So, all right. I suppose we got to give the benefit of the doubt. Let's leave the science to the scientists. That's my. That's right. That's right. All right. <laughs> Good stuff. Vaccine. All right, Kyan. Up next, the Boston Bruins. What happens in the Carolina Hurricanes? What happens when a hockey game gets delayed so long you got to play it the next morning? Well. Boston Bruins fans experienced that as we sit here today. Uh, their game against the Hurricanes on Wednesday evening was delayed so many times because of a record um, uh, uh, a, a, a record number of overtime, six hours and 13 minutes worth of overtimes into five overtimes between the T Tampa Bay and Columbus. They had to reschedule their game in the NHL COVID bubble uh, to 11 a.m. today. And, um, you know, I think we got a little bit of a flavor, much bigger in terms of the fan base, of all that excitement that you usually uh, sort of experience around here from a distance when the World Cup is happening and all the bars open up early in the morning for the World Cup mm -hmm. fans. 
I, you know, other than the fact that there's no bars open right now, there was a lot of people watching hockey at 11 o'clock this morning. There were. There were a lot of people that seemed very happy about having playoff hockey smack dab in the middle of their work from home day. Um, I'm sure it provided some interesting background uh, or not so background for, for those of us working throughout the day. Um, what I think is interesting is it's another example of how how these sports and teams and, and industries are having to really kind of roll with the punches and manage. And as you said, it is a bubble that the NHL is currently trying to operate in um, and how what these two teams over here were playing had such a dramatic effect on the other teams uh, getting ready to play. You don't normally see that um, in regular or playoff hockey. Um, but, and then you, you just picture these, you know, these guys all geared up and they've got all their stuff and they're amped and they're feeling pumped to play and then push back, push back, push back. Um, and then you're looking at, do you play at midnight or one in the morning or do you just kick it to the next day? I can't imagine how mentally frustrating that must've been. Indeed. Um, mentally and, and, and physically just kind of waiting around too. Uh, you, you don't make, uh, uh, you're not at your sharpest. So, um. Uh, they kicked off the game today. I do think that this illustrates, particularly hockey. Um, there's uh, NHL hockey right now. There's a lot of excitement and sort of, uh, you know, involvement and interest around it. It's 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 showing that beyond the fact that it's an industry, pro sports are an industry, and and, and that's how I think they've been covered primarily um, during COVID nineteen. How they're going to recover? How they're going to adjust and create a fan experience and, and, and carry out the games and uh, baseball, you know, is, is, is teetering because of all the outbreaks where I, the NHL has, has had a different experience, but bottom line in American culture, professional sports, uh, even in this environment, maybe especially so because the distraction is necessary is needed uh, you know, a really a big part of the cultural experience and a, and a, and a part of what keeps people, sane during uh something like this pandemic yeah it it's all different i think it's gonna be it's it's all gonna look different for a while i would uh you know kudos to to the teams for just again kind of rolling with it and getting up and doing what needed to be done today after uh multiple delays which i guess last night's game as a side note was like the fourth longest playoff game in NHL history, which really I need to go find out how long numbers one, two, and three were because yeah, that's unbelievable. long time. That's a really long time to be, to be playing anything, quite honestly. It is. All right, Kyan. Go Bees. All right, finally, Cayenne, let's talk about something we have all been using a lot of in the past several months. That's video conferencing, remote uh, meeting uh, platforms. And um, the big 800-pound gorilla has been Zoom meetings, still is in my book in terms of uh, branding and recognition. I want to talk about that in a, in a few moments. But but Microsoft Teams uh, is, is, is really digging in and recognizing the um, the enterprise-wide uh, potential here to build uh, 
teams into the Outlook platform and really to do everything you do with Zoom and more uh, and, and, and to capture that part of the market in the office uh, among, among businesses. And, and it's probably a really smart move. Um, tell me more about it. So the, I think when this all started, when we all went uh, work from home back in March, Zoom was the forefront uh, of people's video chats. You saw people all of a sudden using Zoom to have happy hours, to have meetings, uh, to host webinars and events. Uh, I think Microsoft Teams was probably increasingly popular for some offices and programs, but it is certainly resurging now and has a lot of interesting features that sort of take your Microsoft Office experience and your Zoom experience and put them all into one. Um, and in a world where we're all trying to make things as easy and seamless as possible, it does seem like the more logical path for, I think, for myself at least. Um, I'm I signed up for a Zoom account and when this all started and now I feel like it's probably not necessary. Sorry to Zoom. Because our because we happen to be one of those enterprises that are transitioning over to Microsoft Teams to, uh, not to, you know, not, yeah. not to get uh, too in the weeds, but that's true. Yeah, and, and I think you're right about that. Um, I, you know, I'll, I'll, I, I've achieved a comfort level with Zoom, and my and, and I, lo I love the idea of, of, of having your, my own account that I can just boom at, at a uh, boom Zoom at a at a moment's notice, uh, you know, create a meeting. But but you're right, we can do all this, and within the whole ecosystem of your other office um, intra office platform uh, uh, tools and such, it, it, it's going to be very interesting. From uh, from a brand perspective, though, and from an and, and uh, from a um, uh, recognition perspective, I do think a couple things. One is, you know, th there's a, you know, there's Google Meet, there's Cisco WebEx, there's GoToMeeting. God, you know, don't forget them; they've been around. There seems to be a lot of, uh, you know, Wendy's and Taco Bell's and sort of second and third tiers out there, and and, and there's kind of a there's 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 a McDonald's and maybe there's a Burger King and we don't know which one of those is going to be, um, in terms of the dominant brands here. However, I think that we've seen or we're seeing maybe the quickest brand to generic use of brand ever. Meaning, I I think I'm going to be calling this zooming right. Let's do a zoom. We can do a zoom. It's like Xerox. It's like Band-Aid. It's like Frisbee. You don't play Ultimate Flying Disc. You play Ultimate Frisbee. Yo, yo. Did you know Escalator is a brand name? I did Escalator. not. You know, this podcast, wow, what a dumpster fire. Dumpster is a brand name, right? It is, But it has been <laughs> genericized. Kleenex, Q-tip, Popsicle, Zoom. Let's do a Zoom. I think that Zoom may have captured... The, and I don't know if it's good or bad. I, I think it's uh, it's it's trampolines. Another one, believe it or not, it, it, it's um. You achieve a certain status when your brand has been genericized, and uh, I think Zoom may have quickly achieved that. Yeah, I also think that for the battle, people, or not people, but that teams will have is people will have a Zoom account 
and not have a Microsoft Office account. Um, so if you're trying to find ways to stay connected with family, um, it might be that it's everyone has a Zoom account and that's been the easier way to do things. Not everyone may have Teams, even though only one person needs to have it, it will open in a um, web platform. But we've also seen Gmail now has a video function when you go in. Uh, Facebook uh, Messenger is the app used on the portal, um, but also you can now have Facebook Messenger, like FaceTime, yeah, screen, I, screen I, groups, and and th so everyone's really trying to figure out their way into this. But to your point, I think Zoom did become the standard so quickly, and it will be interesting to see because most people don't say I'm going to do a video call now. They say I have a Zoom meeting. I have a Zoom meeting. Yeah, I think it's a great observation. I think I think personal use, family use, you know, is, is going to be a, a a space for Zoom ongoing. Uh, they'll pro they will fight uh, tooth and nail to retain their um, premier position in the business market. I think that they are actually um they they've begun they've either developed or begun to launch uh, ways to integrate with Microsoft Teams. Uh, you know, uh, uh, in in some way or to enhance it, uh, you know, the things you do when you know you need to protect your territory as a company, as a brand. And you know what? It's going to cause all of them. Hey, competition is, is good, right? So it's going to it's going to force all of them to take the best from each other and keep trying to get better, whether that means options or, you know clarity, picture quality, sound quality, whatever it may be, uh, we're all going to end up with better options for consideration. And as a consumer, that's a great thing. Yeah, I agree. All right. Excellent. Well, Cayenne, that's another edition of 321 Go in the books. And um, good conversation. Have a great uh, rest of your week. You too. Thank you. Awesome. Welcome to OA On Air. I'm Ann Murphy, partner at Seven Letter, which just merged with the PR practice of O'Neill & Associates. Well, today we're going to be talking about financial literacy and the importance of starting a financial education early in life. My guest is Kevin Noyes, Senior Vice President and Regional Manager at Brookline Bank. Kevin, welcome to OA On Air. Thank you, Ann. It's great to be here. Well, Kevin, here's a here's a question for you. How do you describe financial literacy? And on the flip side, what's financial illiteracy? Well, financial literacy is the possession of a set of skills or knowledge that allows people to make, you know, informed decisions with their resources, with their financial resources. You know, we use them every day to make financial decisions. You know, when you think about your financial decisions, we have to think about, you know, what are we earning? What are we saving um, our money on? Are we saving money? What are we spending our money on? And how are we protecting it or investing it wisely or not? You know, it, it's kind of funny. I, I read something recently that they said, according to the Financial Industry Regulatory Authority, 63% of Americans are categorized as financially illiterate, which I thought was kind of frightening. They further sort of elaborated that they lack the basic skills to reconcile their bank accounts, to pay their bills on time, to pay off debt, or to plan for the future. Wow. 
Yeah, that's what I thought. I thought it's, that was kind of frightening. It is a that's a big number. That's a big number. You know, and I'll I'll give you another big number, and that is, um, and this is something that has stuck with me for so long. I my previous life, I I went to school to be a business education teacher, so financial literacy is kind of really part of me, if you will. Uh, I read something at in the Wall Street Journal, gosh, probably. 10, 12 years ago, that they said 80% of parents don't talk to their children or teach their children about savings or checking accounts. 80%. Well, you know, let's move on to that. At what point in a, a student's education or even parents to, you know, parents to, to their kids, what, when should they begin to start learning about financial literacy? Well, first of all, it's never too early to teach kids about savings. Uh, you know, there are things that I've done in my career that I think are uh, wonderful and, and meaningful. And one of the things that we did uh, is that we chatted with children that were grades K through two, kindergarten through second grade. And we sort of used this premise of a storybook. There's a story out there uh, by a kid whose name is Alexander. And the theory of the story is that Alexander had a really horrible, awful day. Well, the kids know the story. They laugh at the story because he did. He had an awful, awful day. So they came up with another book that said Alexander, who used to be rich last Sunday. So Alexander was given a dollar from his grandparents. And through a series of things and activities and, and whatnot that Alexander did, at the end of the week, Alexander had a button a gum wrapper and a bus token. He had nothing, nothing. <laughs> you know, so- Yeah, lesson we, learned there, right? <laughs> exactly, exactly. I mean, one of the things that I remember in the story is that he got to hold a snake for three seconds and it cost him 25 cents or something like that. So, you know, the, the kids kind of laughed and understood it. Then we took it a step further and we gave all of the children that we were talking to a dollar. We gave them four quarters. And then we did the same sort of thing with the students. And we said, okay, who here wants to buy this pencil? This pencil is 25 cents. So, you know, a lot of the kids would take this and we'd go through a series of things. And then by the end, we had this really great, great present that was going to be a dollar. Well, half the kids had no money or a lot of the kids had no money, so they learned, had they sort of thought ahead and saved up their money, they probably could have got the better things. So it, it was an interesting exercise based off of a really fun story. Well, I know that you had also been involved with the, um, the Credit for Life program at Danvers High. Could you tell us a little bit about that? Absolutely. Um, I was involved with that for about 15 years. Um, we started at Danvers High School. The Credit for Life program is sort of like a career fair above and beyond, if you will. So what we do is we ask the kids what they want to be when they grow up, and we put them in that career at the age of 25. We figured out, figure out what their salary would be at that time. We take out all the taxes and Social Security, et cetera, and we boil that down to a net monthly salary. They're then given a series of tools to work with. One is a budget plan. The budget plan is great for the kids. It helps them sort of work through and plan what they're going to spend their money on. Then we give them a savings account, a checking account, a credit card, a credit history with a score that are randomly assigned. We have 11 different credit scores ranging from really, really awful to outstanding. 
and the kids see the importance of those credit scores throughout the day um, because they have to go get a car. They have to get transportation. So they have to get a car loan. And if they have an awful credit score, they learn really quickly the importance of having a good credit score because their rate is increased because their their um, credit score is not so great. So the kids have to go out and get transportation and food and housing and furniture, insurance. We, you know, we really make them do all those sort of real world experiences. Mm-hmm. And to me, this has been such a, a rewarding experience. I have two stories that I like to share about this that really sort of hammer at home. I have probably 80 volunteers generally when I work this fair because there's about 16 booths and we do anywhere from 200 to 300 kids in a, in a year. And I had a volunteer who came to me the second year they had volunteered with me and they said, you know what, Kevin, I really love this program. And I said, well, thank you. That's great. You know, I really enjoy this program as well. They said, you know, your budget plan. I said, mm-hmm. they said, I use that budget plan to save for my house. Wow. And I said, really? She said, yeah. You know, I used all your tools. I put all my monthly expenses in those tools. I figured it out and I saved for a house. And I said, wow, you just don't know the impact you have. And then my other favorite story that I have, and this is probably about five years old. I I, I tend to float around a lot throughout the day because it's about a three hour program and I'm listening to students and I heard these two kids talking back and forth and one kid said to the other kid, Hey, you have a lot of money. And the kid said, well, yeah, yeah, it's, it's okay. He said, you should go to the, um, the fun, fun, fun booth and, and buy that vacation and put it on your credit card. It won't be a problem. You have plenty of money. Kid said, no, no, that's okay. I don't want to do that. Dude, really? You have a lot of money. You should, you should get that credit card. He says, no, that's how my parents lost their house. Wow. And that you, is, yeah. See? And you, you just don't think about those sort of things. So this 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 program really really helps them kind of set their goals for the future and see exactly what they need to make monthly uh, that that monthly budget and kind of start on uh, start about start budgeting. When when students start making their money and earning income, part time jobs, newspaper route, babysitting, lawn mowing, summer jobs, what are the first things that they should think about when they get that check? So the first thing they should think about is, of course, I'm a banker. So the first thing I'm going to tell you to do is you should be putting some money away. So I always have taught my children, uh, take your paycheck. A portion goes directly to your checking account because you will have some bills that you want to pay. And another portion needs to go right to your savings account. You kind of go with the element of paying yourself first. Make that part of your salary a bill you're paying. You're paying yourself. So set it up as direct direct deposit and just send it away. Mm-hmm. And therefore, you kind of forget about it. The kids should build some sort of a plan, like a savings plan. In the business world, we talk about a lot about smart goals, which are specific, attainable, realistic, um, time-bound, and measurable. You can pl- apply the same sort of concepts to a spending plan and to goals. So think about something. If the kids at this age, maybe they want to save for a new laptop. Maybe they want to save for a car. They should sort of say, okay, in whatever time, I want to save for that car. So what do I have to do to get there? So make themselves sort of a written plan to how they're going to get where they want to go. Because they always say, 
that which is written gets done. Well, we were talking about credit cards a little bit earlier when, you know, the student said his parents got into trouble that way. Mm -hmm. uh, how do you feel about young people getting their own credit cards? Do the credit card, can they even do that? Do they have to be 18? Is that? Yeah, it, you know, 18 is, is the legal age to get a credit card, but that's not necessarily saying they're going to get it because they obviously do have to have the income. And at the age of 18, they may not have any sort of prior credit um, experience. So a, a lender would kind of look at that. There are programs out there for kids to get like a student credit card or a secured credit card, or, you know, you could have sort of a parent as a co-owner or co-borrower. Right, right. I tend to push the kids more to the debit cards to have them get the understanding of uh, the ease of the card, the accessibility and the tracking of it, the tracking of their spending. Because I think sometimes with the credit card, kids can easily get in trouble because they don't really track it as much as you have to when it's coming out of your checking account. And, and the interest, it's like if a debit card, you have to have it in there or else right. you don't get, you don't pay for that. Item. Correct. Correct. Right. Correct. Um, do you think young people are more susceptible to some of these online scams? I know the world, their whole world is in there, you know, is on their phones. So I'm just curious as to how that affects them. Well, so the interesting thing, the Federal Trade Commission puts out some great materials on scams. And did you know that right now there are 30 current scams going on? No. no. On every imaginable topic. So when you talk about phone scams, the scammers are getting better and better all the time. And there's so many different phone scams out there. And you know, you can talk to a teen, you can talk to a senior, there's all these sort of things that you have to be concerned about. And I like to sort of jokingly say, if you pick up the phone, and they say, you've won a prize. <laughs> Did you apply for that prize? It's the same thing with the, the sweepstakes. You've just won a sweepstakes. Hmm, I don't remember entering a sweepstakes, but I won it anyways. You know, th there's these sort of phone scams out there. Please, you know, if they say that they're a federal agency, you're not going to get arrested. You know, you don't right. need to really send money through, um, send cash through the mail or pay in a Walmart gift card to a federal agency, which is mm -hmm. a lot of the scams that are going out there right now. Wow. It's, it's amazing. And never, ever, ever give your birth date and social security number out to anyone on the phone. <laughs> <laughs> that is that is true. And, and the other thing, and you bring up a really great point, is people have to be mindful when they're creating sort of their passwords and their their codes and that sort of thing. You really want to stay away from your birthdays, your addresses, your, um, you know, you, sort of common numbers. Interestingly enough, they say the most popular number that people have on their ATM cards for their PIN code is 1111. Wow, that, that would make sense too. Right, right. I'm so, never going to use that. <laughs> <laughs> it's true though, and it and it's kind of funny. You don't think of these sort of things, but it, it's so true. People do do that. So, what about students' spending habits, and how do they analyze what they can afford? Well, you know, kids should really track their daily spending habits, and they really need to know where their money goes each and every month. And it's it's really kind of simple. All they have to do is sort of write down what they're spending their money on every time they spend it. I like to use a calendar and I make this really sort of funny reference. I reference anybody who's ever been on Weight Watchers. 
If you've ever been on Weight Watchers, you know that you have to write down every single thing you eat. Well, now they have an app, but you used to have to write down every single thing you ate. So working a spending plan is exactly the same way. Every time you spend money, you should write down exactly what you spent and how much you spent for that. So I like to use an example for what about that coffee you buy every morning? Do you get a large coffee every day? Write that down, how much you're spending for that coffee. And it'd be intriguing to see how much you spent at the end of a day, the end of a week, and end of a month. How much are you spending? So is there a way to reduce that spending? Do you look at perhaps going to a medium, going to a small? Do you cut it? Do you do multiple coffees in a day? So maybe you cut it down to two or to one, bring coffee from home. So it really adds up. And you kind of need to do that, that step first to understand that process. Because once the kids know what they're spending their money on, they can better prepare a budget and focus on the relationship between their spending or expenses and their income or how much they're getting paid. So once they sort of do the spending plan, then I kind of take it and I use a calendar again for a budget form. And I say that they really should write down the days of the month that they get paid. Put that, put that paycheck down. Then on the other days, they should write down the items that they are bills that have come up or that they have to pay. So once they sort of write all that stuff down, they figured out what they're spending their pocket money, if you will, on. Now they've got their bills down and they can figure out by taking their income, subtracting their expenses or their, their paycheck and their spending, and they can figure out sort of what they have as a net income. You know, I know sometimes it's hard to figure out this, this budget because things can change. But the good thing is that there's some expenses that they have on a daily basis or a monthly basis rather that are fixed, such as like a student loan or a car payment. Those are fixed, you can figure those out. Then you have some expenses that are called variable expenses and you have some control over those. You can impact how much you spend on those. So you could look at like your gas bill, how much it costs you to put gasoline in your car or your utilities bills, those sort of things. Those are things that you can have some control on. So if you find that your expenses are getting too high for your income, you can look at those variable or flexible rate expenses and find ways to sort of reduce them. Or maybe you look to your income and say, okay, I'm clearly not making enough on my income, so I need to figure out ways to increase my income so that my spending plan works out better. Once you sort of work through all these processes, the best thing about a budget plan or a spending plan is it helps reduce the anxiety over knowing where the next dollar is coming because you've planned everything out and you know what you have left. It gives you a sense of control over your money. And then ultimately it helps you build your savings or your assets. And it goes back to that point that I've said before about paying yourself first. So ultimately a spending plan helps you get through sort of these months on a regular basis. Well, as we wind down here, you know, what is what final advice uh, can you give students and parents to to just start talking about financial literacy? What would you have them do? Well, you can't start it early enough. You can make it sort of fun when it's when if you're starting really young, do it around chores and then have it go to a savings account, putting money in a jar. Uh, we're going through a coin shortage right now. Uh, people are saving the coin, which is great. 
the mint is making less coin, which isn't as great, but you know, start saving that sort of thing. And sort of my biggest thought that I always have when it comes to uh, financial literacy and, and money is if you don't set up a plan for yourself and a plan for spending or saving your money, someone else will. Someone else will figure out a way to spend your money for you. Great advice. Well, thank you, Kevin. And we hope that everyone listening becomes more financially financially literate to help them pursue their goals, as you say. And we hope to see you next time on OA On Air. Thank you. Hi, Kyan. Hi, Tom. How are you? Two minutes for Tom. Two minutes. Okay. Here we are. I hope we're talking about I hope we're talking about a historic moment in time created by Joe Biden yesterday afternoon. When he reached across, picked up the telephone and called uh, Camilla Harris and asked her if she was ready to serve the United States and its people as the vice president of this country. And she said a very loud yes, a very loud yes. You know what? I think he did it via video conference. Did he? The picture. Yeah. Really? Um, Yes, that is what we're talking about. We have a vice presidential nominee. There's now the Biden-Harris ticket. Uh, As you said, it is historical for actually a number of reasons Um, and just very exciting. I... uh... I, I couldn't be happier for her. More importantly, I couldn't be happier for the country, for the moment in time that we're in, for the importance of putting not only a woman, but a woman of color on the ticket. It's historic. And just as it was for Barack Obama back in 2008, you know, when I hope people were catching the news late that a Barack Obama had won the presidency of the United States I hope everybody woke up their babies to show them that historic moment. And they're going to do exactly the same thing this coming November, the presidential election. Uh, it's an important day coming up. And it's it's historic for so many reasons, as, as you noted. It's also, um, you know, one of the really interesting things that I read somewhere was this idea, too, that she was essentially one of the the top names from the beginning. He he committed early on uh, that he was going to choose a woman, which um, is much appreciated, and I think was the right was the right decision. But he had there were a lot of of really good, smart, capable women uh, for him to choose from, which in its own right is historic and says so much about where we are as a party. Um, and the direction that we're moving towards as a country, I don't think we're there quite yet, but in terms of the fact that there was a, a he had, he had choices. He wanted to have a, a woman on the ticket, but he had a lot of choices and she seemingly was a lot of people's front runner from day one, um, for, I think a number of reasons. And then what she did in her time, um, the last few months while quote unquote, you know, I guess some would say campaigning to be vice president, but also just how she spent the last few months um, says a lot about her policies, what's important to her and the attributes that she is bringing to this nomination. Well, I'll tell you what she, what she brings. 
she's the daughter of a single parent. And she has lived firsthand the hardships of living poor and the muster it takes in order to succeed. When she brought that up in the debate with Joe Biden, and she talked about that little girl going to school by bus was her saying to Joe Biden, look, you voted the wrong way years ago. This is an opportunity. I mean, the poetic symmetry here of Biden understanding the point that she made in that debate and coming back and giving her the position is the feat of an extraordinary man in my mind. Somebody mm -hmm. who knows that he might've cast the wrong ballot and that things have changed and that he's changed with them. And yeah. he's, willing to, he's willing to rectify that. I also think that I heard her give a speech in the US Senate and it was, it was a very impactful speech. And I implore anybody who hadn't heard it to go back and Google it because it's worthwhile. It really tells you about her and it tells you about her experiences. And it also shows her intellectual capacity and her eloquence. Um, thirdly, she's somebody who has been a district attorney She's one statewide in California on two different occasions for attorney general. And she's acclimated. She's only been in the Senate since 2016, but she really has become a great Senator asking a very tough question and putting forth some very good positive legislation. She'll be, she'll be talked about as being a wacky liberal left of center, not. The fact of the matter is that she is a moderate black woman who has an understanding of what the future looks like and where she wants to help America and the way she wants to help America get there. I, I think it's a terrific appointment. I would agree. I also, can we yep. for a moment have to talk about just what an amazing debate performance she is going to give when the time comes? Um, because she is, I mean, she's, as we've said, she's incredibly smart. She's been a prosecutor. Um, I think she proved herself on the debate stage really, really well early on, um, and people took notice because of her debate performances. I, I know that even just among the Twitterati, people are already talking about what the vice presidential debate is going to look like um, and already excited for it. So am I. So am I. I mean, she'll be debating against a man who is a doctor of platitudes. And uh, it'll be a fascinating, it'll be a fascinating debate to watch. She'll hold her own, I, I, I know that. And uh, I, I just think it's a, a terrific historic moment. Anyway, um, as a woman, you must be very proud. I, yeah, you know, I, I remember when um, Hillary Clinton clinched the nomination. I remember where I was and where I was sitting. Um, I, Logan, my, my son was a, was a baby. And I remember a lot of people talking about what a momentous time it was for people with daughters and, and things. And I remember thinking the same um, just about having a son, because I think it's just as important for young men to see women come into power as it is for young women. Um, and the more we see of it and the more it becomes normalized, I look forward to the day when our, you know, when my son's generation look around and think it's preposterous that the idea that a woman uh, being a presidential nominee or that a woman um, 
of color being a vice presidential nominee was ever even deemed to be historic. So um, it's, a, it's another signal of our, our country and I think the Democratic Party moving uh, in the right direction. I wind up all these programs by saying, and I don't know how, but there will be a brighter day. I know now one reason why there'll be a brighter day, because of the Biden-Harris ticket. Okay. Thanks, Tanya, John. Thanks, Megan. Yep. Talk to you. Be healthy and safe. That's it for this week's episode of OA on Air via social distancing. Thanks for tuning in. Talk to you next week.